human to human interaction is going to become a premium experience. It's how you check into a flight, how you get seated on a flight. You know, I would imagine there's going to be no B and uh, E seats for a while because we're going to have to have that little distance between us. So everything's going to change just a little, and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, but they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano? It's just about to explode. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Our guest today on Great Minds is Michael Ventura. Michael and I met probably, I don't know, Michael, three, four, five years ago by now? Yeah, sounds right, yeah. And is the uh, founder and Grand High Exalted mystic ruler of the <laughs> empire that is uh, Subrosa. He's also an extraordinarily accomplished author, and we'll talk about applied empathy. But where I'd love to begin with you, Michael, is you have gone in some incredibly diverse and creative directions in your career. And I'm going to guess that Paramus Catholic was a pretty conservative place. <laughs> <laughs> so when you began looking back on your years there in that uh, Catholic school environment, which is uh, uh, certainly on the conservative side overall, did you imagine then where you would end up? You know, I had no idea we were going to start there, but I love that you did. Um, you know, P Paramus Catholic for me was, um, I would say, sort of my first leadership training ground. So in some ways, I, perhaps I did know where I was going to end. I don't think I knew it was going to be in brand strategy and design and, and authorship and some of these other things that I do. But, um, you know, I, as a result of being in like a pretty intense academic environment um, and sports environment, um, you know, I ended up being class president and captain of two sports and things like that. So I, you know, I was thrust into a lot of like high school age leadership, which is nothing like professional age leadership, but a good, a good starting ground. Um, but at the same time, you know, th that school in a weird way was kind of liberal for a Catholic school. So we were, we were, when I started there, the, there was a big wall. It was like the Berlin wall, uh, that ran down the middle of the school. And on one side, it was a boys school. And on the other side, it was a girls school. And the archdiocese wanted to be progressive and have the first co-ed school. And so, uh, between my freshman and sophomore year, the wall came down like in Germany and, uh, and the girls and their plaid skirts came, came over and, uh, and all of a sudden we were a co-ed school. And, um, and so that kind of loosened the, the reins of sort of the, the historical sort of, um, prep school environment a little bit. Bit. And we got um, we we had some uh, lay teachers who were non-religious who were there teaching, and it kind of it became sort of like the liberal version of a Catholic school, which was kind of cool. Jumping to the Michael Ventura of 2020, you know, we think of words like entrepreneur. We think of words like uh, you know, certainly anything around creativity and branding and author. But going back to your first gig at a college. What were the hints then that, you know, you were going to end up where you are today? So I, I graduated in the, the moment the bubble burst in 0102. And so uh, there were no jobs for an undergrad with no experience. And so I was kind of 
really just looking for anyone who would who would give me a chair uh, and and I'd sit down and do whatever work they wanted me to do. And I got picked up by this boutique ad agency who was focused exclusively on um, advertising and marketing for uh, the high net worth divisions of banks. And so it was, you know, very dry, but nonetheless, it was about a 50 person shop. And, uh, and I got to see everything because of a company that size, you know, you see strategy happen, you see design happen, you see production happen. And so being the most junior person on the team, I was just essentially a floater. And so I got to sponge up a bunch of stuff over that year and change and then, uh, got laid off, uh, about a year later, a year and change, something like that. And then found myself sitting around saying, well, I probably know just enough to be dangerous uh, about how how the how an agency runs, and uh, and I've got nothing to lose because I'm 23 years old, and a buddy of mine uh, had just been laid off from Lehman Brothers as a software engineer, and so this was when digital was really becoming the 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 first wave of um, you know, flash microsites and all of these things that back in uh, the early 2000s brands were interested in, and so we locked arms, and I was the strategy and design guy, and he was the technology and finance guy and we launched a business and I've been an entrepreneur ever since. Fabulous. Now, we didn't start Sub Rosa until 2009, so there was some other stuff in between. Yeah, so that business that Albert and I started then, uh, <clears throat> we picked up a couple other partners over the, over those years. It evolved into mostly a, a, strat, uh, a digital and experiential agency. And then uh, we hit the 2008 crisis. Uh, we were probably around 40, 45 people at the time. And our business just cratered, as many did during that time. And we just we had to lay off about two thirds, three quarters of our team, get down to basics. Uh, at that time, a lot of the partners all just split up and kind of said, "All right, entrepreneurship uh, might be done for me. I'm going to go try something else." I decided to stick with it. And so, what that business evolved into in '09 was Subrosa. When I think of your shop, you know, it's completely unique. Talk about how your previous experience shaped that. Um, I don't really know another shop that has the same skill sets at the top that Sub Rosa has. That's nice to hear. I, you know, I think for us, we've always been very intent on being a through the line partner, meaning that we didn't want to just be a consultancy that recommends, and we didn't just want to be downstream of a brief and executing. And so with the history we had as that digital and experiential shop during, you know, 03 to 08, we learned how to do the doing. We, you know, we had dirt under our fingernails. We were building stuff every day. And then in 09, I went to a couple of our partners uh, during that time and I said, look, what are you not getting? What, what don't you have from your current agency mix? And they all kind of said the same thing. They said, look, we've got great agencies who execute and they're good and we're going to keep feeding them briefs. You guys are one of them. But we also have these consultants that we bring in and they're great, but they end at the deck. When they slide the document across the table, they're done. And the challenge we have is we have to be the glue between the delivery of that document, sell it into the organization, get a budget, write a brief, run an RFP, find an agency, get them up to speed. That's that's where all the wheels fall off the bus. And so if you could build a practice area where you could move upstream and be more consultative and strategic and work with us on business and brand challenges, not just marketing and communications issues, then we think we could find more work for you. And so that was what we set out to build. And now 70% of our business is 
purely consultative and strategic, but that 30% that we've hung on to from our roots allows us to make sure that we can still implement it. So our business now kind of lives in a realm where we don't just work with marketing teams, which of course is a big part of our business, but not exclusively. CHROs, learning and development officers, diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, all of that kind of stuff has really become big core areas for our business too, because that's where the, the juiciest problems are often inside companies. And, and somewhere thinking around design and integrating empathy into that creative process, that weighs in as well for you, doesn't it? Yeah. So we, in a few years into Subrosa, we wanted to figure out what was our special sauce, right? What's the thing that makes us unique and different? What's our big differentiator? And we started studying the projects that we had done that were successful. And we started studying the projects we had done that were failures. And we looked at both and we said, when we were at our best, <clears throat> empathy played a big role. And when these projects failed, it was because we weren't practicing enough empathy. We weren't getting out of our own shoes. We weren't really seeing the world from other people's perspectives. And so we went out and instead of just going to sell that idea to clients, we said we need to get really rigorous and smart about what empathy really means and how it plays a role in our work. And we need to have a process for this. And so we went down to Princeton and we actually uh, convinced them to let us teach three semesters of a course there uh, called Applied Empathy, which was actually a 12-week course that we taught to undergrads. And it forced us to build 12 weeks of curriculum and to really know this stuff inside and out. Hey, everybody. It's not about being nice. This sentence I have said probably more than any other time in my life when we've been sitting in a room talking with clients about empathy. Because there's this preconceived notion that empathy is about being nice, or being sympathetic, or being compassionate. It's none of those things. Those are side effects of empathy. What we're gonna talk about today is how to really build a practice of empathy, how to use it in your work, how to define it in a different way, and ultimately how to, how to bring it into the work in order to solve problems and be a better collaborator with people. And then after doing that, we took it to West Point and we taught it there to cadets and to the, to the faculty. And we saw in juxtaposing those two academic environments that we had built something really rigorous and strong that we could now bring to clients. Right, and that's a piece of territory that I think you now own. You know, I I think we I, I like to think of it that we sort of um, put a good flag in the ground, but we also uh, we want everyone to work this way. That's why we wrote the book. You know, writing applied empathy was to not put a a wall around it and say empathy is our thing and you shouldn't have it. Like if there are more companies practicing empathy in the world, great. You know, I think the more that we have doing that, the better. So I think one of the things that we've found is that that generosity of in, of information and what we've learned and how it has helped our business, how it's also challenged our business. You know, it's, it's not been easy and there have been ups and downs and some of the work got harder before it got easier. And empathy is not an easy thing to practice. It takes time. It takes money. It takes, it takes mistakes. And, um, and we've been transparent about all of that along the journey. And I think that's helped people see, um, that if they want to do it, it's going to be work, but it will be worth it. Empathy is a word with particular resonance in the current coronavirus environment. View through your lens of, of your knowledge and you know, going back to that curricula that you created, all the work that was done to write the Applied Empathy book just two years ago. What's your particular take on the evolution of empathy and resonance at probably the highest level in our lifetimes because of what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, it's it's coming up a lot. And, you know, I, I get 
notes from folks often in the past few weeks where people say like, man, what a great time to be, you know, the empathy folks, you guys must be, um, you must have so much to say. And, you know, what's funny is I've actually been pretty quiet, not like we've published some stuff. We've, we've put some tips and tricks out and, you know, shared some long form articles on medium about ways that you can practice empathy with a remote workforce and things like that. But, you know, the first step in empathy is listening. And so in the first weeks of the crisis, everyone was looking for us to say something and we had to come back and say, actually, like that would be rushing in way too soon. Like for us right now, we have to listen what's going on. What, what are people actually feeling? Let's have some conversations. So we went out and had a lot of conversations. We went out and asked a lot of questions, but we didn't have a lot of answers straight out of the gate. Now we're starting to get a picture of what some of the big challenges are. There's a lot of organizations who, as you likely know, you know, are, are struggling with how to make their teams feel supported psychologically, emotionally um, amidst this quarantine and this working environment. There's also been, this has been fascinating, you know, it's so much of the emphasis, uh, because rightly so, it's it's very challenging for employees who are juggling work and also parenting and homeschooling, or, or, or you know, uh, there's a better word for it that, that teachers are using. I know it's not homeschooling, but I can't think of what it is. And, and, um, uh, and a lot of organizations have been looking at how do we make our our employees with children feel supported, but what has been overlooked and is now becoming sort of a topic that we're starting to see from some of our clients is the uh, single employees who are home alone for now five weeks straight and are going stir crazy because they don't have anybody to interact with and they've been sitting in their house by themselves or the employees who may live alone or with a partner, but are actually caregivers for elderly family or friends that they can't support. And they're dealing with the grief of not being able to reach out to them. So I think everyone kind of swarmed on the, the the first and most visible challenge, which was employees with children. But now what we're actually starting to get asked for help with on also is how do we support these other employee groups that we didn't necessarily see were going to struggle as much, but they're struggling in different ways. One of the things that uh, I was on a call yesterday with a bunch of different agency owners um, that I had organized to just trade notes and say like, hey, you know, like I know we compete against each other sometimes, but let's all get on a Zoom and just like talk about what we're all dealing with. And most of them said the same thing that it's almost it's it's quite uh, um, unempathic to try to rush back to work when the you know when the quarantine's over and that most of us are saying that we're going to try to wait until the school year starts because the last thing that would be um, helpful is once we hit the summer and these children are home and don't have school to go to, um, that the parents go back to work. And then like, how are we going to take care of the kids? And like, they can't go to camps and they can't do this and that. And so, um, so actually a lot of companies I've been talking to, not just agencies, but also client companies have said, even if the quarantine drops in the next five, six weeks, realistically, we may not require people to come back full time until the fall. Unprecedented times. So, so what advice would you offer to folks, particularly those that are alone, the single uh, folks who have no one around, who are going a little extra stir crazy? Are there particular things that you see uh, or things that you in, are practicing in your own home mm-hmm. that could help others? Yeah, I think one thing that uh, has been working for a lot of folks, myself uh, and, and my, my wife included, uh, has been keeping a schedule 
because right now the blend between working and not working when you're at home is really tough to pin down, right? You're, you, you could sit in a chair and go nine hours straight of sitting on Zoom calls and, and, and not even stretch your legs because, you know, you're not walking in and out of conference rooms. You're not hopping in a taxi and running to a meeting. You're not, you're literally just staring at a screen for eight hours straight. So um, one of the things that we've been really encouraging our team to do is to is to take con- concerted breaks and to have a schedule of breaks throughout the day. Um, one thing our team has also been doing, which has been really cool, is just virtual coffee breaks. You know, they'll put 15 minutes on the calendar and and have an open hangout or Zoom channel. And anyone who wants to jump in just jumps in. And it's just 15 minutes of like kind of getting your head out of the out of the the workload for a minute, chatting with your colleagues. What'd you watch last night? What are you guys up to? You know, what are you reading? Whatever it is, and then kind of going back into work and kind of just interspersing those throughout the day and making them all optional, but giving people the flexibility to kind of toggle in and out of uh, of that work mindset. So one of the things that is very common to hear right now is things are going to be different, mm-hmm. right? The world is going to change uh, permanently, and things will not go back as they were across the board. I have a hard time getting my head around some of that. Like we were supposed to go see the Rolling Stones in Louisville in mid-June and presumably Keith Richards will survive. I think that's a, a, a a very good bet. And at some point that tour will be rescheduled. And I can't imagine going into a stadium where the Rolling Stones are playing and that, and the place not being full. But clearly there are going to be changes. Work from home will be, I think, even more well-received than it has been. What other changes do you think are going to stick? So, you know, I think one of the things that we're starting to pick up on with a couple clients, um, one of them being a big hospitality client, is giving guests or uh if it's if it's non-hospitality but we're thinking about it in a in a retail standpoint probably the same thing um more agency through their own device so you know keyless check-in kind of process and things like that that hotels have been trying to do for years but really hasn't caught on people still walk up to the front desk and check in right but if you're going to walk up to the front desk and grab that pen and sign your name the same way 500 people before you did that day you know that there's risks of of infection and 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 spreading the the virus that way too so I think we're going to start to see agency flip, flip into our own personal devices a bit more so that we have a little more autonomy and control and, and physical distance from um, some of those interactions. But the, but the pendulum also has another side to it, right? Like when that happens, what are we giving up? And I had a call yesterday with a luxury brand that's a client of ours. And they, they're all closed. All the retail stores are obviously closed. And one of the things that we got around to is that uh, shopping and, and human-to-human interaction is going to become a premium experience. It's not commonplace to just be able to interact with someone in, in the wake of this immediately thereafter. So, you know, all of those things, how you check into a flight, how you, how you get seated on a flight, you know, I would imagine there's going to be no B and D seats for a while or uh, B and uh, E seats for a while um, because we're going to have to have that little distance between us. Right. So everything's going to change just a little, and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Now jump from there to something I know you're a big fan of and have been involved with in Burning Man. 
you know, so how do we get back to, you know, those big music festivals, the big cultural festivals? That's going to take a while. Absolutely. It's going to, it's going to take a while. And I think it's going to take, um, it, it might, unfortunately, I don't want to sort of, you know, doom and gloom it, but I think it might also take a, uh, a second wave or a second resurgence to teach people that you can't just run back into these things. Cause I, I, I'm very fearful that once people feel like we're on the other side of the curve, that we can get back to business as usual. And what's going to happen is we're going to get, you know, hit with another wave. And then we're going to realize we can't just like dive back into this unless there's a vaccine or something that comes around. And so, um, you know, so events like Burning Man, you know, I've been going for 12 years and, uh, run a camp of 100 people out there. Burning Man is not your typical event. In fact, it's not really an event at all. What it is is an experiment in creating a utopian society. It's art, it's raw, it's real, challenging, messy, and unexplainably beautiful. And one of the things that I've seen is that that community is coming alive in a really meaningful way to be supportive to each other without the trip to the desert. So like, for example, this Sunday, we're hosting a Zoom with about 10 of us who uh, who practice different forms of meditation or acupuncture or things like that um, for you know a group of a couple hundred people who are gonna tune into this Zoom chat. And we're gonna have two hours of just conversation and, and practicing different practices to help people cope and stay healthy. And um, so we're bringing what we used to do out there virtually and i think the the through line of both is community and so when we start to realize that you don't need the same place to have the same community community starts to spread uh in in, in a really viral way no pun intended right right and how much i know you're a very active practitioner of eastern and indigenous medicines how has that helped you navigate through this crisis uh, well, it's kept me grounded for sure. I, uh, you know, I have a, a daily practice that for me just is is mandatory at this point. You know, um, if I don't do it, I mean, I, I haven't missed days. I haven't missed a day in in you know over five or six years at this point because for me it is it is how I keep my feet on the ground because the world is spinning really fast. There's a lot of demand. There's a lot of, uh, of crazy happening right now. And so finding those practices, whether it's Eastern medicine or whether it's something else that works for you, it could just be deep breathing, right? It doesn't have to be something, but we have to be mindful of how much sort of frenzy we're getting whipped into in our minds. And we sort of forget sometimes to just breathe right? To just be in our shoes for a minute, to just take a beat. And so whatever practice works for you, the reason why they call it a practice is because you've got to keep doing it, right? So you know, people tell you about meditation. If you, if, if you can't meditate for 10 minutes, meditate for five. If you can't meditate for five, meditate for two, but do it every day. And that two will become five and that five will become 10 over time, but it's about the repetition. And so I think for me, what I learned was in, in the practices I've studied over the years, the discipline to keep with them, even when you're tired or you're sick or you're hungover or whatever it is, you still do it. And that's what makes it, that's what makes it work. So you come at a new client opportunity and you walk in the door and you've got sort of a different background than a lot of agency folks. You, you package yourself in a different way. Um, I'm going to guess that most of the competitors, if you're, you know, in a situation bidding for a particular piece of business or pitching for a piece of business, I should say. Um, you know, you've got 12 years of Burning Man under your belt. You've got, you know, you've got uh, a heavy design 
background. You've got a real academic, uh, rigorous background that you sort of backed into. I, I love that story, how you got Princeton to you know, commit to doing it, and then you had to figure out what it was going to look like. Do you see those things giving you a competitive advantage, disadvantage? And when you're with a client who's, you know, coat and tie, very conservative, does that chemistry work for you? Or does it sometimes not work for you? Take us inside. It, yeah, it's, it's a bit of both. I would say that um, we are often the wild card in a competitive environment. Um, that sometimes is to our advantage. But frankly, most of the time, it's not. Because most of the time, it requires someone on the other side of the table to be willing to, even if they thought we were the right choice, they still are going to feel like they're putting their neck out a little bit more by working with us than if they're going to go with the uh, the tried and true option on the other side of the table that, you know, the, the old like nobody gets fired for hiring McKinsey adage. Right. And so in the same way, like, we're, you know, we're not we're not necessarily going up against McKinsey often. But you know what I mean? Like we're 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 definitely going to be the one that is, you know, people are going to say, oh, good luck. <laughs> you went with them. Um, but, you know, one of our biggest and most long lasting clients is one of the world's largest investment banks. And so we do sit across the table from the suits and the ties and uh and and that cognitive diversity that we bring to the table is actually why the relationship works because what the world they come from and the world we come from are different but they're not so different like we're still you know rigorous business people who understand how to solve complex challenges but you know we are going to sit at the table and look at it through a different lens than they might and that diversity of thought is what makes the work better. If you're just hiring an agency that looks and sounds and smells like you do, then what you're really just getting is, 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 you know, confirmation that your own intuition was right. And so you kind of need to push yourself as a client in some ways and, and pick those agencies that if you've got the right chemistry and you've got the right capability, then really that those are the two those are the two things that that I always look for in a pitch do we get on really well and do we have the capabilities that match your needs and if those if those line up then don't worry how everyone looks and dresses and what they do with their free time that's going to add to the conversation not make not drag it down so you got about just over 10 years under your belt now at Subrosa give us your biggest hit and your biggest miss Mm. So I think our biggest hit is probably us. And I don't mean that to sound um, self-congratulatory, but I think because we have continually made mistakes and we've continually screwed up. I mean, I screw up stuff every week and, and sometimes big stuff, sometimes stuff that's hard to repair. And the thing about this organization is that we've really become a, a culture that supports each other in the down moments as well as the high moments. And, you know, I've, I've had my down moments and I've sat with the team and I've shared stuff that, you know, that doesn't feel great to share sometimes because, you know, you've got to be the, the CEO who has, you know, who's in, who's, uh, who's, who's got it all together. And sometimes you don't. And so I think I'm, I'm most proud, you know, I'm, pl- I'm plenty proud of the work we've done for our clients, but I'm most proud of the work that, our team has done for each other to continue to reinvent this place and to push each other to be better than we were yesterday. Our biggest miss, I think, it it comes down to trying to do the projects that sometimes you know you should have passed on, but 
the fee was so attractive or the brand was so attractive that you were like, you know what, we could do it. We'll figure it out. I know we could do 70% of it. So it's just that 30% we got to figure out. And you convince yourself that like, that's going to be the thing you can do. And we touched the stove a couple of times too, and, and burned ourselves pretty bad. And so, um, you know, and we had, uh, you know, we hurt relationships, um, early on in the business and we haven't done this in, in years because I think we've, gotten smarter about knowing what we need to do to do our work well and and knowing what we don't do well and just saying to a client you know appreciate the brief this is super exciting this isn't our thing and and come back to us if, if you need something like this because this is what we do really well but learning that lesson uh took a lot of splinters looking ahead you know strange times to say the least do we see the glass half full michael I have a chronic disease called optimism, and I always do. Um, you know, I think that for me, it's um, it's something that uh, I, you know I've I've got to believe that we're we're heading somewhere positive with all of this stuff because we're learning a lot. There's no doubt about that. I think everyone who's going through this right now wouldn't deny that like part of what's happening is a learning experience for all of us, um, and we're really getting a perspective that we that we never imagined we would have. There's, there's a paradox that I came across a couple days ago that I've really hung on to. Um, Stockdale, who was, uh, uh, Ross Perot's running yeah, mate sure. back, a back in the Admiral day. Admiral Scott, Admiral Stockdale. Admiral I remember him well. Exactly. So Admiral Stockdale was a POW and, um, and he is, uh, he is named, he has a paradox named after him, which is kind of a cool thing to have. And so, uh, the paradox, the Stockdale paradox is, to simultaneously retain faith that you will prevail in the end, regardless of difficulties, while also confronting the most brutal facts of your current realities. And I think that that's what most of us as leaders are going through right now. You've you, like when he was a POW, he had to believe he was going to make it, even in spite of all of the terrible things that were happening around him. But he had to prepare for the worst. He had to prepare that he wasn't going to make it. He had to be ready to, to see his end, but he couldn't lose hope. And I think if there's something that I've latched onto in these past few weeks, it's that same spirit of, you know what, you've got to batten down the hatches. And we've done a couple layoffs and we've done some furloughs and we've done salary reductions because we've had to do it for our team in order to do what's right for the, for the long run of this business. And it hasn't been pleasant. But we also know where this is headed, and we also know where we will go to as a result of being good to each other and, and leaning in harder on our work and our partnerships with our clients. And, uh, and we believe there's a, you know, the sun will rise again tomorrow. Absolutely. I, I think you and I now are bonded. We may be the only two people who remember who Admiral Stockdale was. <laughs> That's probably right. Fantastic. Well, Michael, you stay safe. It's been wonderful talking with you, and, and I'll be sure to stay in touch. Same here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.